Section 10 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annie Rue. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. John C. Calhoun, Part 1. John C. Calhoun, Footnote. Speech on the Acceptance of the Statue of John C. Calhoun, delivered in the Senate of the United States, March 12, 1910. End of footnote. Mr. President, when the senior senator from South Carolina, Mr. Tillman, whose illness we all deplore, did me the honor to ask me to take part in the ceremonies connected with the reception of the statue of Mr. Calhoun, I was very much gratified by his request. In the years which preceded the Civil War, South Carolina and Massachusetts represented more strongly, more extremely perhaps than any other states, the opposing principles which were then in conflict. Now when that period has drifted back into the quiet waters of history, it seems particularly appropriate that Massachusetts should share the recognition which we give today to the memory of the great senator from South Carolina if i may be pardoned a personal word it seems also fitting that i should have the privilege of speaking upon this occasion for my own family were friends and followers in successive generations of hamilton webster and sumner i was brought up in the doctrines and beliefs of the great federalist the great whig and the great republican it seems to me i repeat not unfitting that one so bred and taught should have the opportunity to speak here when we commemorate the distinguished statesman who during the last twenty-five years of his life represented with unrivalled ability those theories of government to which hamilton webster and sumner were all opposed from seventeen eighty seven to eighteen sixty five the real history of the united states is to be found in the struggle between the forces of separatism and those of nationalism other issues and other questions during that period rose and fell absorbed the attention of the country and passed out of sight but the conflict between the nationalist spirit and the separatist spirit never ceased there might be a lull in the battle public interest might turn as it frequently did to other questions but the deep-rooted underlying contest was always there and finally took possession of every passion and every thought until it culminated at last in the appeal to arms the development of the united states as a nation in contradistinction to the league of states falls naturally into four divisions the first is covered by the administrations of washington and adams when the government was founded by washington and organized by hamilton and when the broad lines of the policies by which its conduct was to be regulated were laid down when washington died the work of developing the national power passed into the hands of another great virginian john marshall who in the cool retirement of the supreme court for thirty years steadily and surely but almost unnoticed at the moment converted the constitution from an experiment in government tottering upon the edge of the precipice which had engulfed the confederation into a charter of a nation while he was engaged upon his work, to which he brought not only the genius of the lawyer and the jurist, but of the statesman as well, another movement went on outside the courtroom, which stimulated the national life to a degree only realized in after years, when men began to study the history of the time.
By the revolution we had separated ourselves from England and established nominally our political independence. But that political independence was only nominal. The colonial spirit still prevailed. During two hundred years of colonial life our fortunes had been determined by events in Europe. It was no mere metaphor which Pitt employed when he said he would conquer America upon the plains of Germany. And the idea embodied in the words of the great commoner clung to us even after the adoption of the Constitution, for habits of thought, impalpable as air, are very slow to change. The colonial spirit resisted Washington's neutrality policy when the French Revolution broke out, and as the years passed was still strong enough to hamper all our movements and force us to drift helplessly upon the stormy seas of the Napoleonic Wars. The result was that we were treated by France on one side and England on the other in a manner which fills an American's heart with indignation and with shame even to read of it a hundred years afterward. And in those days of humiliation there arose a group of young men, chiefly from the South and West, who made up their minds that this condition was unbearable, that they would assert the independence of the United States, that they would secure to her due recognition among the nations and that rather than have the shameful conditions which then existed continue, they would fight. They did not much care with whom they fought, but they intended to vindicate the right of the United States to live as a respected and self-respecting independent nation. Animated by this spirit, they plunged the country into war with England. They did not stop to make proper preparations. Their legislation was often as violent as it was ineffective. The war was not a success on land, and was redeemed only by the victory at New Orleans, and by the brilliant fighting of our little navy. On the face of the Treaty of Ghent, it did not appear that we had gained a single one of the points for which we went to war, and yet the war party had really achieved a complete triumph. Through their determination to fight at any cost, we were recognized at last as an independent nation, and what was far more important, we had forever destroyed the colonial idea that politics and the peace of the United States were to veer hither and thither at the bidding of every breeze which blew from Europe. Such work would not have been done without a vigorous growth of the national spirit and the national power and the group of brilliant men who brought on the war were entirely conscious that in carrying out their policy they were stimulating the national, the American, spirit to which they appealed. Chief among the leaders of that group of young men who were responsible for the origin and the conduct of the War of 1812 was John C. Calhoun. As the war, with its influences and results, sank back into the past, domestic questions took possession of the field, and the conflict between the separatists and national forces, which had been temporarily obscured, forged again to the front, but under deeply altered conditions. When John Marshall died in 1835, his great work done, the cause which he had so long sustained had already entered upon its third period, the period of debate, and the task which had fallen from the falling hands of the great Chief Justice was taken up in another field by Daniel Webster, who for twenty years stood forth as a champion of the proposition, not that the Constitution could make a nation, but that, as a matter of fact, it had made a nation. Against him was Calhoun, and between the two was Henry Clay. The twenty years of debate which then ensued are known familiarly as the days of Clay, Webster, and Calhoun. 
The names of the presidents who occupied the White House during most of that time have faded, and the era of debate in the history of the parliamentary struggle between the national and the separatist principles is not associated with them, but with the great senators who made it illustrious. As the century passed its zenith, all three died, closely associated in death as they had been in life. The compromise which Clay and Webster defended, and of which Calhoun despaired, was quickly wrecked in the years which followed, and then came war, and the completion of the work begun by Washington, through the life and death of Abraham Lincoln, and the sacrifices and the tragedy of four years of civil war. To have been, as Calhoun was, for forty years, a chief figure in that period of conflict and development, first a leader among able men who asserted the reality of the national independence and established the place of the United States among the nations of the earth, and afterward the undisputed chief of those who barred the path of national movement, implies a man of remarkable powers both of mind and character. He merits not only the serious consideration which history accords, but deserves also that we should honor his memory here, and turning aside from affairs of the moment, should recall him and his work in order that we may understand what he was and what he meant. He was preeminently a strong man, and strong men, leaders of mankind, who shape public thought and decide public action, are very apt to exhibit in high degree the qualities of the race from which they spring. Calhoun came of a vigorous race and displayed the attributes, both moral and intellectual, which marked it with unusual vividness and force. On both sides he was of Scotch descent. His name is a variant of the distinguished Scotch name Calhoun. It was a place name, assumed at the beginning of the 13th century, when they came into possession of certain lands, by the noble family which was destined to bear it for many generations. Judged by the history of the knights who, in long succession, held the estates and the title, the Cahoons, or Calhouns, who spread and multiplied until they became a clan, were very strong, very able, very tenacious stock. They had great need of all these qualities in order to maintain themselves in power, property, and position during the five hundred years which elapsed before the first Calhoun and the first Caldwell started on the migration, which after a brief pause in the north of Ireland carried Patrick Calhoun and some of the Caldwells over the ocean to South Carolina. Both families were typical of their race, for the Calhouns are spoken of as a Gaelic clan, while the Caldwells were lowlanders from Solway. In order to understand these types, we must go back for a moment into those dim, almost uncharted regions of history where the tribes of the Germanic forest may be discerned pouring upon the wreck of the Roman Empire. When the successive waves of Teutonic invasion broke upon Britain, they swept up to the mountains of the north, driving the native Picts and Scots before them, and no part of their conquest was more thoroughly Danish and Saxon than the lowlands of Scotland. But the Highlander, who represented the survival of the Celts, and the Lowlander, who represented the invaders, were quickly welded together in a common hostility to their great and grasping neighbor of the South. The Celtic blood mingled with that of the descendants of the Teutonic tribes. They quarreled, they fought side by side, they intermarried, they modified each other and gradually adopted each other's customs and habits of thought. We have but to read Rob Roy to learn that although the Highlander looked down upon the Lowlander as a trader and shopkeeper, and the Lowlander regarded the Highlander as wild and barbarous, the ties of blood and common suffering were strong between them, and that they all were Scotchmen. 
It is a remarkable history, that of Scotland, one of the most remarkable in the annals of men. Shut up in that narrow region of mountain and of lake, a land of storm and cold mist, with no natural resources except a meagre soil and a tempestuous sea to yield a hard-earned living, poor in this world's goods, few in number, for six hundred years these hardy people maintained their independence against their powerful foe to the southward, and only united with him at last upon equal terms. For six hundred years they kept their place among the nations, were allies of France, were distinguished for their military virtues on the continent of Europe, and cherished as a pride of race and country, to which their deeds gave them an unclouded title. They did all these things, these little people, by hard fighting. For six hundred years they fought sometimes in armies, sometimes in bands, always along the border, frequently among themselves. It was a terrible training. It did not tend to promote the amenities of life, but it gave slight chance of survival to the timid or the weak. It produced the men who fell with their kings at Flodden. They could die there where they stood beneath the royal standard, but they could not be conquered. Those six centuries of bitter struggle for life and independence raged continuously against nature and man, not only made the Scotch formidable in battle and renowned in every camp in Europe, but they developed qualities of mind and character which became inseparable from the race. For it was not merely by changing blows that the Scotch maintained their national existence. Under the stress of all these centuries of trial, they learned to be patient and persistent, with a fixity of purpose which never weakened, a tenacity which never slackened, and a determination which never wavered. The Scotch intellect, passing through the same severe ordeal, as it was quickened, tempered, and sharpened, so it acquired a certain restlessness in reasoning which it never lost. It emerged at last complete, vigorous, acute, and penetrating. With all these strong qualities of mind and character was joined an intensity of conviction, which burned beneath the cool and calculating manner, and of which the stern and unmoved exterior gave no sign, like the fire of a furnace, rarely flaming, but sending forth a fierce and lasting heat. To this somewhat rare combination we owe the proverbial phrase of the perferidium ignium scotorum, an attribute little to be expected in a people so outwardly calm and self-contained. To them, in the struggle of life, could be applied the words which Macaulay described Cromwell's army. They marched to victory with the precision of machines, while burning with the wildest fanaticism of crusaders. After the Union, under Queen Anne, peace came gradually to the long-distracted land, broken only by the Jacobite risings of 1715 and 1745, and then the Scotch intellect found its opportunity and began to flower. In the latter part of the 18th and first part of the 19th century, Scotland gave to poetry Scott and Burns and Campbell, to history Hume and Robertson, to metaphysics Hamilton, Reed, and Stuart, to fiction Smollett and the author of Waverley, to political economy Adam Smith, and these are only the greatest luminaries in the firmament of stars. Edinburgh became one of the most intellectual centers of Western civilization, and the genius of Scotland was made famous in every field of thought and imagination. It was just at this time that John Caldwell Calhoun came upon the stage. 
for the Scotch intellect, trained and disciplined through the darkness and conflicts of six hundred years, blossomed in the new world, as in the old, when once the long pressure was removed, when the sword needed no longer be kept always unsheathed, and men could sleep without the haunting fear that they might be awakened at any moment by the light burning homesteads and the hoarse shouts of raiders from over the border, whose path was ever marked by desolation and bloodshed. In the inadequate description which I have attempted of the Scotch character and intellect, slowly forged and welded and shaped by many stern, hard-fighting generations, I think I have set forth the mental and moral qualities of Mr. Calhoun. He had an intellect and a great strength, a keen and penetrating mind. He thought deeply and thought clearly. He was relentless in reasoning and logic. He never retreated from a conclusion to which his reasoning led. And with all this he had the characteristic quality of his race, the perifidium igneum, the intensity of conviction which burned undimmed until his heart ceased to beat. End of section 10.